You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 27th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello, all. And special guest, Daniel Loxton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Daniel, the show, Daniel. Daniel. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Where did you come from? Get in here. Like a magic elf. Poof. Well, Daniel is uh, our second guest rogue. People seem to respond well to the whole idea. They like Richard Saunders, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And actually, we moved you up in the rotation a little bit, Daniel, to talk to us about your new book, Evolution. But before we get to that, Evan's going to tell us about This Week in Skepticism. January 27, 1921, when Albert Einstein suggested the possibility of measuring the universe, which startled the audience that the, of the Prussian Academy of Sciences in Berlin with his address, Geometry and Expansion. I picture a dozen monocles falling out of eyes. <laughs> and a bunch of, <laughs> and a bunch of people saying, Ach du Liebe! <laughs> Great <laughs> visual. <laughs> Applying certain results of the relativity theory, he came to the conclusion that if real velocities of stars, as could be measured, were less than the calculated velocities, then it would prove that real gravitation's great distances were smaller than the gravitational distances demanded by the law of Newton. Could you repeat that last part? <laughs> yes, law of Newton. Thank you. Okay, good. No problem. It's crystal clear now. So, Daniel, you work for Skeptic Magazine, correct? Yeah, that's right. I, do, I work for Skeptic, where I do the junior skeptic section of Skeptic Magazine, which is a 10-page bound-in thing at the end for kids. You're the editor and illustrator of that, correct? Yeah, that's right. I uh, I write and illustrate most issues. Um, occasionally, I bring in a guest writer and edit that, but usually it's just me. And you've just come out with uh, a book called Evolution, How We All... How We and All Living Things Came to Be, which you both wrote and illustrated. Is this your first book? Uh, it's my first English language book. Uh, we we rolled out a, 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 a Portuguese language one, uh, only available in the country of Portugal last year, uh, just in time for the Darwin 2009 celebrations. Uh, it was also on the topic of evolution and, and also based on junior skeptic material. You know mm -hmm. uh, Portuguese? No, not a word. I uh, <laughs> I actually can't pronounce the name of my first book. <laughs> Interesting choice. That's great. Yeah. That's, yeah, was, but that gets to be troublesome, doesn't it? <laughs> Why did you decide on Portuguese then? Uh, it it wasn't my decision. We were we were shopping around a uh, book project based on on uh, the junior skeptic articles about evolution and uh, uh, this large philanthropic organization called the uh, Gulbenkian Foundation in, in uh, Portugal contacted us, wondering if uh, if they could license the junior skeptic story and uh, and at that time i was just right in the middle of talking to kids cam press the publisher for the english language one and uh, uh what ensued was a very complex three-way negotiation <laughs> but we managed to get both projects licensed at the same time oh super so you were kind enough to uh, send me a, a review copy of the book and i like it it's very pretty oh i'm glad um, i made it out to you that's, that's i did i did um and it's it's clearly aimed at kids uh, what would you say the the age range is the sweet spot for the book that you were aiming for? My publisher is positioning it for ages uh, eight to thirteen. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's probably about right. Um, it's it's a, a little bit for anyone who's familiar with Junior Skeptic. It's pitched a little bit younger than Junior Skeptic. Like Junior Skeptic, it has that uh, 
the kind of uh, stealth adult uh, quality about it as well. So that, yeah, uh, uh, it is. I think pleasant enough reading for for an older reader, kids my age. Say yeah, I mean it's it's actually a really nice primer on evolution. I'm sure that probably ninety percent of the population doesn't you know, isn't familiar with a lot of this information. Well, it seems that 50% of the population thinks dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time. So. Yeah, right. It's yeah. <laughs> in all the cartoons. Why wouldn't they think that? Yeah. Ergo. They didn't? <laughs> 50%, folks. But I saw hey, it on TV. 20% of this podcast thinks so. <laughs> I, I love the cover. Is that it shows a bird-like dinosaur going after like a dragonfly. Is that like a, an Archaeopteryx or? Yeah, that was what we were aiming for. Uh, Archaeopteryx. Did you? Where did that image come from? Oh well, I went back in time with my camera. That's that's how I got that. <laughs> <laughs> did you make? Did you make that? Did you? Yeah, yeah. This I, commitment. Uh, Holy I'm, crap, dude! That rocks. <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, this this one is made by myself and uh, and Jim Smith, who works with me on on Junior Skeptic. Wow. Well, let's get on with some news items, Rebecca. You're going to tell us about dowsing for bombs. Oh, am I? Are you going to say it's a bad idea? If you choose. Is that like bobbing for apples? I just don't like getting bossed around, that's all. Do it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, So, yeah, my new home country um, has been making waves this week because a company here um, has been selling for the past several years, actually, um, dowsing devices. They've been selling them not like when most people, I think, in our audience think of dowsing. They think of farmers dowsing for water or for oil, things like that. But these dowsing devices were actually meant to find bombs and other (laughs) explosive materials, which makes it like when you're dowsing for water or oil or gold, that we can pass off as a hobby for old bored men but in this case it becomes something much more dangerous so what's the Um, difference between the ones for water and the ones for bombs um well the ones for water don't kill people (laughs) that's the main difference the thing is neither works both um both operate on um the idiomotor effect which is basically the idea where if, if you let's say you hold a pendulum in your hand it will it could move left to right or up to down without you realizing that you're making it move it's a let's say a subconscious or unconscious um movement on your part that causes something to move so uh the same thing goes for say uh an ouija board you don't realize that you're making it move and it seems very magical well the same goes for for dowsing rods and so in this case it's a company that is selling dowsing rods for uh, the purpose of selling to the military in Iraq, which is pretty much the worst place you want to have a pseudoscientific device meant to detect explosives. This is a machine, and I use that in the loosest term possible, um, which is to say not a machine. Uh, it's basically a piece like a plastic box uh, with an antenna, coming out of it and there's actually nothing in the box no that again yeah Yeah. it's it's that again um randy actually talked about this ages ago years ago uh he offered this company the uh chance to partake in partake in the million dollar challenge and obviously they never responded recently the mainstream media has caught on 
last November, there was a big New York Times story on this company. Finally, uh, there was a major investigation into the company, and just this past week, the president of the company has been arrested on charges of fraud, which is really fantastic news because it's the first step to getting these devices pulled out of Iraq. Uh, in the time that they've been in Iraq, supposedly detecting bombs, literally hundreds of people have died from bombs that have made it past these detectors. So, I mean, it's a, it's a serious problem. If there were a working detector at these checkpoints, those bombs would not have made it through, and those hundreds of people might still be alive. So the, the company is ATSC, and Jim McCormick is the name of the managing director. Uh, McCormick literally has, you know, hundreds of lives on his hands right now. Um, but he doesn't really seem to care. He's defending his BS product and claiming that it works by um, using the body's static electricity and other pseudoscience uh, explanations. There's a, a a news magazine TV show here called Newsnight, and they looked into it. They took the device, or actually a very similar device, and took it apart and found nothing inside. And then what McCormick has are these cards that are supposedly... Um, Supposedly, they, they are attuned to different substances. So you stick a card in the device, if depending upon what you want to detect. If you want to detect a torpedo, you would stick the torpedo card in, for instance. <laughs> um, so they did get their hands on a set of these cards. They took them to a, a computer expert, a computer engineer, who peeled them apart and found that inside was not any kind of memory chip any kind of computer chip, it was merely one of those security tags that they put, for instance, on DVDs at Sam Goody. <laughs> so, you know, it'll set off the alarms when you go out the door. So that like, was that's the working part? That was it? That was the only piece of, yeah, wiring that was inside this car. I'd say that qualifies as fraud. Yeah. He, <laughs> the the computer engineer said, no, there's absolutely no way you could put any information on this car. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a quantum thing. <laughs> right. I'm sure it is. Quantum is <laughs> must be. entanglement, spooky action at a distance, you know, all that good stuff. Quantum is probably the one buzzword that this guy hasn't tried to use. <laughs> so it's it's not looking good for him, but these devices are still being used in Iraq, you know, as we speak, which is tragic because people are still putting their faith in these things, which means bombs are still getting past these things. This guy really and the guy, Jim McCormick I should also mention, is out on bail. So, I mean, it's not done yet by any stretch of the imagination, but it's the first big step in hopefully putting him away for good. You know, what a, what an unbelievably evil scam, right? It's one thing to, like, read somebody's palm and, and give them some BS or whatever, but you're selling bomb detectors to the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, the, the callousness of that is pretty extreme. I mean, it's difficult for me to imagine a way that Jim McCormick could be somehow delusional to the point where, like, he might actually believe that this works. It's literally an empty plastic box with, you know, a security tag shoved in it. There's no way you could think that that works. On the other hand, it's not not surprising that the operators think it works. Uh, The operators always think that dowsing rods work. It's really a persuasive effect. It's very convincing. 
You know, apart from the callousness of this, two two things really stood out for me about this story. One is that none of these claims ever, ever go away. You know, they, they just always surge back. Just when they seem totally quaint and, and passe, they surge back and they kill somebody. Uh, and the other thing is that it, it took a, a dedicated professional skeptic to set the ball rolling to try and put a stop to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it took it took many actually because yeah. uh, not only did Randy um, come out publicly against these back, I think it was October two thousand eight, but recently um, after the New York Times article, Bruce Hood, who I think we've had on the show before, um, he wrote the book Super Sense. He's yeah. a he's a very sweet guy here in England. He contacted the company and asked if he could dem- if he could test the device. Or actually, I should say, he wrote a blog post about the company. They commented on, Jim McCormick commented on the blog post and said, oh yeah, come on out and test it. You'll see it works. And so he agreed and Newsnight wanted to come along with him. And that's how they got into the whole thing. And I I think that's one of the big things that got this ball rolling as well. Um, So I, I think that the the skeptic blogosphere did a really fantastic job of keeping after this company until the mainstream media caught on. So yeah. I, I think we can count this one as a win for skeptics. It reminds me of one of the, the main functions for, for having a skeptics movement and people who do skepticism in a dedicated way is just being a, you know, being a memory bank for these kinds of weird claims. Like, uh, I, I remember Randy talking about the quadro tracker back in the, uh, you know, back in the early 1990s. Uh, and at that time, it all, you know, it was a dowsing rod. It already seemed kind of quaint. But, it, you know, it's really weird. Like uh, the Quadro golf ball finder, Junior Skeptic busted that way back in uh, 98, I think. Yeah, so this thing keeps popping up. This bit, you, the, this, this is the Quadro tracker. You're absolutely right. And we, we discussed similar devices where, you know, people sell essentially what is a gadgetry dowsing device for finding lost people, for hunting treasure, looking for contraband or or uh, drugs. The Quadro, I think that was the one, right, that Randy investigated where rather than some kind of electronic chip, the guy was like Xeroxing a picture of the thing you were looking for. Like he, would, <laughs> yeah. he would Xerox a picture of a bullet and put it in there. Now it will find bullets, which is Whoa. like the equivalent Whoa. of like the cartoon characters like drawing a rabbit on – their detector, like a hand drawing it on, and then it will detect rabbits, you know? <laughs> it could work. Yeah. Hey, Did you guys hear the, this guy's response when, like, the uh, doubts yes. were first being raised? <laughs> He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, I can see why people might be suspicious because it looks kind of simple. So the next version, we're going to put <laughs> blinking lights on it. <laughs> wait, wait, Steve, wait. He, he said that and he... Like believed it? Yes. <laughs> yes we had a fifty percent right. more more novelty things. <laughs> was that like fifty percent more distracting? Wait, 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 I have to clarify this. Did he say that to like a consumer or someone asking him whether or not to it works to the press? To the, to the press. press. So to he the thought. Journalists. So this guy legitimately thought that blinking lights added to its effectiveness. No, well, added to its uh, appeal, its, its visual appeal. appeal. Yeah, it's called the Christmas tree effect. Okay, <laughs> I'm just. That's why I was clarifying. (laughs) The actual quote in the New York Times article back in November 2009 was, One of the problems we have is that the machine does look primitive. We are working on a new model that has flashing lights. (laughs) You know, that that actually would be a huge step forward because suddenly it would become a working machine of some sort. 
It would be a, <laughs> a light true. blinking machine. Right. It would actually be doing something. Yeah. So what happens? The next the next model like emits a pleasant scent or something? Is that the next uh, upgrade? It buzzes. An, it buzzes. It's got one of those Christmas tree car fresheners inside of it. But seriously, <laughs> law enforcement agencies, the military, the FBI, they keep getting taken in by these dowsing rods. What is it? You know, you can't it detect stuff with magic. It's yeah. just these yeah. little black box devices that says, oh, it tunes in on the frequency. As soon as you hear people saying that. Yeah. Anything like that, it's a scam. Crack yeah. one of those things open before you spend taxpayer money investing in these kind of dowsing scams. It's unbelievable know, that this keeps happening. You would think that there's some type of protocol for anything to get through like that, right? <laughs> especially like, okay, I know this sounds ridiculous, but especially bomb detecting <laughs> devices. Yeah. Okay, I can understand if well, like, you know, they didn't check out like clothing or, you know, didn't do enough research on how long the boots would wear wear out or whatever, but this is something that, that it's, saves it's lives. It's mission critical for life, yeah. life-saving, yeah. yeah. Well, but, I mean, w- once you get this new fancy gadget wouldn't wouldn't you just do a little test a little black and white very easy test between a bomb and not bomb just to see it work bomb. i mean wouldn't you not just bomb. do that i can picture i can picture the the form on the clipboard with just two big boxes to check <laughs> bomb not bomb this, this is obviously a, a catastrophic failure of, of due diligence and and whenever these mm-hmm. things are deployed yes. heads should roll somebody should really lose their job because other people are losing their lives um on the other hand you know it what what we have is a very specialized, you know, set, set of uh, knowledge that you know the guys doing military procurement may not have. So I'm I'm somewhat mm-hmm. sympathetic that they take in, get taken in by scam artists. It's the the kind of uh, perfect storm of a credulous media, credulous uh, government uh, believers throughout the population, and then scam artists taking advantage of it. That's that's what really leads to these catastrophes. Right. I, I agree, but I also think it requires a profound lapse of just common sense. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed. Well, let's move on. Uh, Evan, you're going to tell us about alien life right here on Earth. <sighs> yes, just look around you, for it is everywhere. Well, they're going to be talking about that this week. Today, I think, in fact, at the Royal Society, in which uh, people from all over the planet are going to be gathering. Representatives from NASA, the European Space Agency... UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, uh, people from SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Program, will be there. And they're going to be talking about alien life and how do we detect it and every possible way of detecting it. One professor in particular, Paul Davies, a physicist at Arizona University, will be talking about looking for alien life here on Earth. He believes that, you know, projects such as SETI can really only take us so far, and it's actually kind of a, a narrow sort of a approach to, uh, to, to, looking, to looking for those signals. Basically, somebody has to be uh, out there looking to contact Earth specifically in order for us to be able to detect that. And the chances of that are very, very, very slim. He thinks there's a better chance that we should start looking here on Earth for things. And, and what, what exactly does he mean by that? I mean, is he talking about looking at, you know, videotape of gray aliens peeking through windows and, you know, UFOs and other things? No. No, what he's suggesting is that uh, we need to be looking for things such as, you know, microbes, extremophiles, you know, and living, living in very hostile environments under deep pressure, pressure and extreme heat conditions. 
And these might be the keys to understanding how, you know, effectively life or lives arose on Earth, mm-hmm. which is something we talk about regularly on the show. Um, yeah. You know, it comes up in conversation. Like, what would, what would alien life, you know, look like? What are the requirements for alien life? Um, how and how we go about and how we go about looking for it. So yeah, we and we have talked about this topic before, and the, the headlines, of course, were, were deceptive. Yeah, he's not talking about actually not talking about aliens, meaning life that evolved off the Earth or somewhere else. He's talking about the evolution, the separate origin and evolution of life on Earth, other than what we the life right. that we know. Right. right. So there's alien the to our biology, from, and then there are other. There are supposedly other sets of life that are that do not share the same yeah. origins. It's, it's possible, possibly. Yeah, right. It's possible that life was seeded or arose multiple times in the early history of the Earth. One life, one of those branches, proliferated into all the life that we now recognize. But it's he's saying it's not impossible that still existing on the fringes, you know, in the extremes, there may be the descendants of completely separate origins or seedings from billions of years ago, and they would have a completely, quote-unquote, alien biology. They might be here right under our noses. We just have to look for them, which is, is an interesting hypothesis. Of course, that's that's all it is at this point in time. It's super neat. I, I uh I don't, I don't think they should position it in, in opposition to uh, SETI or to other kinds of exobiology projects. It's just neat in itself. Like, Wouldn't that be the coolest? Yeah, it, it would be cool. And then you're right. It has nothing to do with exobiology. It's actually a, a, a false a comparison there. Well, I don't know about that, Steve. I think uh, there's some comparisons to exobiology in, in that it's a completely different type of biology that That's just true. happened to arise on you know on an Earth class you know a planet like earth with our temperature range and pressures and all that so it would it would show us that yeah this is a, you know a second data point for life it's mm-hmm. true but I, I just think juxtaposing it against seti makes no sense yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah yeah it's uh, in you know the uh, kind of searching for microbes type of exobiology uh, the field work for that is the same as searching for this kind of shadow biosphere uh, denizens mm-hmm. um, going right. to extreme environments and deep down into the earth's crust and things like that yeah, one quote from an article I've read was that less than one percent of all the world's bacteria have been comprehensively studied. Wow, that's I didn't think it was quite that bad, but less than one percent—that's amazing, especially considering you know how diversified their you know bacteria's metabolisms are, and and uh, especially the extremophiles, which are just pro- I think probably right. the most ancient form of life. They've they've been around so long. They they're the ones that that live you know down in the deep sea vents under incredible temperatures and pressures. I mean, just finding different extremophiles, I think, would be would be worthwhile just to see what you know the range of biology that's even possible, even with even if there's only one origin on Earth. I'm really surprised to hear that, Bob. I mean, we, that means that out of out of all the bacteria that we found and have actually studied, that we our scientists just don't have time to get to such an enormous amount that they know we're there. Like they could they can see them as something they haven't identified and just don't have the time. I guess a lot of it's not just not having the time, but they're just, you know, incredibly inaccessible. It's also time and yeah, resources. I mean, you only have so much lab yeah, time. Yeah, that too. That's part of it too. It but takes a, it's, it. it's not a trivial thing to crack under the hood and uh, really look at the biochemistry of every single 
species. Sometimes it's hard to know even if you have a new species of bacteria. Yeah, the taxonomy to, of bacteria is really yeah. bizarre. Still a huge biological frontier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bacteria eat, living off of radio radiation, radioactive, oh. radioactive material. There's, there's bacteria that you could shatter its DNA with radiation, and the DNA builds itself back together. It's like, hello. <laughs> I mean, that, talk my, about an extreme. My favorite will always be the the water bears. I, yeah. I think we talked about like ages ago yeah, yeah. that you, they found that they could be like floating around in space for a while. Yeah, and those are those are they're called they're called tardigrades, but they're not they're not bacterial. They're called water bears. Well, and, all right, yeah, they're called another name is tar- tardigrades. I call them space unicorns. <laughs> but they're not they're not really they're not bacterial though. But they are very very interesting. So they're Bob, also they're called moss piglets. They're called Mardi Gras. Davies describes a really neat way of looking for these kinds of uh, shadow life forms. Uh, he says, look, you know, just in the laboratory, I get a whole bunch of bacteria and just start turning up the parameters until all known forms of life will be wiped out and just see if there's anything left. And, uh, awesome. Yeah. Are <laughs> I love it. And, uh, and he describes <laughs> some, uh, some uh, discoveries of extremely radiation-resistant uh, bacteria, things like that. Uh, yeah. So that was so simple. That's cool. cool. That's cool on, method. You know, he's going to be. I'm, I just need to get in a quick plug. Sure. He's going to be on Little Adams in March. I'm, oh, I'm cool. going to be interviewing him. I think with uh, Neil Denny. Fantastic. So, if anybody cool. has any questions, you want to ask him personally. That that should be cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and just to wrap it up, a few other things are going to talk about at this conference are uh, people are going to give some presentations ranging from looking at the pl- the plausibility of life existing uh, like an arsenic based life form <laughs> life form that that perhaps is here on earth um and then they're going to also talk about talk about the latest findings on uh, mars and how that um you know those how those findings equate to uh, our our search yeah. for extraterrestrial life i think mars is our planet. best hope for exobiology right now Personally, what about maybe Europa? So. Europa, yeah, Europa is up there too. So far, but, but Mars so is long much more accessible. We know about Europa. Yeah. That's that's the sad thing. That's a I problem. But it's, it's got yeah, it's got everything that that you'd need though for some nice juicy bacteria. Yeah, but Mars is more accessible. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah we got to knock on the doors in the neighborhood before we can start traveling to the other cities. Although yeah. it's it's possible that. Some of these like spectro- spectrographic analyses of, of Earth-sized planets, uh, ex- exoplanets, may actually pay off before we get anything from our own backyard. Imagine that. Imagine yeah. that. Yeah, because you, yeah. you could read the contents of the atmosphere eventually and really say, whoa, this is a biological in, in origin. It would be yeah. great, but it would be frustrating, too, because there's nothing we could do immediately. You know, It would take yeah. an enormous amount of money to send something out. I mean, we couldn't – I don't <laughs> think our technology is close to, uh, to sending something out. I – I asked Phil Plate about that one time. I said, you know, could do we have the technology right now to send a probe to another nearby star? Uh, he said, yeah, maybe if you're willing to throw enough money at it. So, well, if you want to, if you want to wait tens of thousands of years, I mean, yeah. we've got probes now that uh, will intersect other well, systems in uh, many, many thousands, if yeah, not millions t- of years. If tens trick, of thousands of years. Is yeah, trick is yeah. to make them robust enough that they can still wake up and talk to us once they arrive. Yeah, but the thing is, at this point in time, they would be overtaken very rapidly by the probes we can send out no. in 100 years. <laughs> yeah, that's and true. And then they would yeah. be overtaken by the probes we can send out 200 years from then. So then you yeah, never need to do it. You just don't do it, and you just keep That's the classic <laughs> argument. Well, you got just... When we're talking about tens of thousands of years, it's just not worth it. You know, you got to wait. Get that number down a little bit. That would be like saying, you know, that, that Columbus should not have set sail because we should just wait for jet fighters. No, exactly, not. Jay. That's exactly like it. <laughs> that's totally what he said. 
Thanks for agreeing with me. Whatever. I'm voting Steve the president of the Procrastination Society. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Well, I'll vote tomorrow. Yeah, do it but tomorrow. You know my point. <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow. Bob, tell the story of feathered dinosaurs just keeps getting more and more interesting. It, it really does. Do you guys remember the good old days when dinosaurs were like any color, as long as that color was a shade of gray or green, maybe? Sure. <laughs> I had a glow-in-the-dark red triceratops. Really? Red? Interesting. I've heard of a purple dinosaur, but he's kind of a jerk. So annoying. I'm glad those days when that's on my TV are long gone. But nowadays, you see, of course, you see dinosaurs represented in lots of different colors and patterns. There are still scientists that think dinosaurs were primarily shades of gray or green, just like, like modern mammals like the elephants or the rhinos. But I think uh, most often those scientists will think that uh, there's no reason why they, they can't, they, dinosaurs weren't as colorful as modern-day animals, especially you know lizards and birds and snakes. The reason for the color then would be right. It would be just as important it is now to threaten your enemies, for camouflage, to attract mates, and species recognition – uh, so the, there's no reason why I, I don't think we, there was some extravagant colors for for dinosaurs millions of years ago. But the problem has always been determining what those colors are, right? The, the most we've been able to do is really take an educated guess. Uh, do you guys remember when the, the first dinosaur skin impressions uh, were found in, in fossils? Uh, I remember that. I, I think was that in the in the 70s or the 80s? They they called they found these little bumps, these little projections. Uh, that were like um, that were like pebbles. pebbly, pebbly or scaly projections. They called tubercles. I think that's how it's pronounced. But the pigment that produces the color on that skin, though, doesn't fossilize. So a lot of people think that oh, we're never we're never going to know what what the color what what color dinosaur skin was. But that but that doesn't mean that we'll never know if they were colorful because in fact now uh, we've got uh, a dinosaur that we know precisely what the color was. The dinosaur is Cynosauropteryx from 125 mil- uh, million years ago. Scientists have determined that it was most likely ginger colored. Apparently, yay! <laughs> oh, yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> as, as, the, as the resident ginger here, I have to say that. <laughs> but this isn't because of the the skin pigment. Uh, it's because the uh, feather structures that were fossilized. These scientists uh, were from China and the UK, of course, China, because apparently that's where all the feathered dinosaur fossils are in China. Um, they announced recently on the Nature website that this uh, Cynosauropteryx had ginger feather, like a mohawk, kind of extending from its head down its back into the into the base of its striped tail. Now, I want to mention, though, that this, this works – a lot of times we don't credit the people that really came up with some of these ideas. This work was actually inspired by um, fossil bird feathers by uh, Jacob Vinther, who's a graduate student at Yale. He and his colleagues really came up with this technique. Yeah, I mean, we others. interviewed Richard Prum, who's working with, yeah. with that team. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what they did was they examined these fossilized feathers. Now, these feathers weren't just – they're not normal fossils, right? See, these are like – the detail is just incredible. They just fossilized incredibly well, which is what you really need when you're looking at these fossils with an electron microscope. And they found these structures called uh, melanosomes, which uh, in living animals contain melanin, right? You've all heard of melanin. It colors, it colors fur and hair and, and, even, and even your skin. Um, they found these melanosomes um, in, the, in the feathers. And the cool thing about these, these objects is that their shape determines what color – 
they imparted to whatever object they were part of, the shape and the, the arrangement. So if they were like, say, sausage-shaped, they would probably be like a black or a gray color. But if they were more um, ball-shaped, then it would be like a ginger or maybe a russet shade. So that's what they found. They found these ball-shaped uh, melanosomes inside these feather fossils. Uh, the professor, um, Professor Benton from the University of Bristol uh, in the UK, he said that this is the first time anyone has ever had evidence of original color of feathers in dinosaurs. So I thought this was a pretty cool development. But what's the significance? You know, does, what does this mean? That, okay, now the dinosaur encyclopedia will be more accurate for this one species. But it's not. It's, it's beyond that. First off, it supports the theory that birds evolved from theropod dinosaurs. Uh, not that the theory needed a hell of a lot more support, but it's it's good to know that it's a new discovery supports it. Secondly, the finding proves that these structures had to be primitive feathers and not something like shredded tissue. There are still a lot of scientists who are saying that, oh, you know, they, they weren't feathers at all. It was just these, you know, shredded tissue uh, from the animal that, that just happened to fossilize too. Because, they I mean, they weren't shaped like real feathers. These are like really primitive whisker Whisker-like uh, structures that are that they it's believed are very primitive feathers, and then finally that this reveals key information about the evolution of feathers, right? Because these weren't flight feathers. If you've got a, a mohawk of feathers going down your head and your back, uh, obviously you're not flying or even gliding around. Uh, so they think that they may, might have been used for a display for mates or or to threaten enemies or something like that. It probably wasn't for insulation. Because if it's just on your back, then it probably it wouldn't be a very good insulator. So that's why I think it's probably more for a display. Now, Steve, you, I wasn't aware of some of the criticism for for this research. I don't know if you came across any of the crit- criticism. But this 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 guy Vinther from Yale, he said that um, the sample size was too small to say that this specific dinosaur was this specific color. He thinks that they need to look at a lot more fossils before they can make that a definitive statement as to. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that it has the color. And there's also another guy, Dr. Theogarden Lingham uh, Solier at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. He says that these uh, researchers should have looked at uh, dinosaurs with no feathers and to look for those melanosomes in their skin. As a control group. Yeah, Yeah, he said in the email, regrettably, I have to say that the study would not pass muster in college science. And I don't know, I think he might have a point there because, Steve, aren't melanosomes wouldn't they exist in skin as well? I mean, aren't aren't they the structures in skin that has the uh, the melanin pigment that that gives skin its color? Yeah, they, they they would be in skin, but they wouldn't be in fossilized bones, for example, right? Right, but 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 how about in those cases where where skin has fossilized? They might be able to find them in there. You might, wouldn't yeah. they? But I guess the the question is to, to make sure that these are actually melanosomes that you see them only in structures that you think are feathers or skin. Right. You're not right. seeing them in structures which are just other debris or, or or bone or something that shouldn't have melanosomes. So just as a control. Hey, they're being good skeptics, right? This is this is the meek yeah. of peer review. <laughs> Absolutely. This is what they're supposed to do is raise all yeah. the objections, and then only when you deal yeah. with all of these objections do we say, okay, this looks like it's probably true. So, when, Bob, what colors, what colors are they saying these dinosaurs would have been? Ginger-colored. Ginger, russet. Kind of a did they like actually make a picture like patterns? Yeah, as well, yeah. Whites. They're redheads and they had stripes. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing you know, yeah, as, the tails. As, as someone who does paleo art, uh, one thing I like about this is that it, it generally confirms what paleo artists infer when we look around at, at existing animals. You'll tend to see patterned creatures. You'll tend to see auburn colors and umber colors and blacks and whites. 
uh, you'll uh, you'll rarely see uh, the kind of like fancy blues and reds that I've put on my, the head of my Archaeopteryx on the cover of the book. Right. Um, right. Dinosaur artists uh, love putting in blues, but I, I I try to avoid it because it's so uncommon in nature. And is that a survival characteristic? I don't know why it's uncommon, but it it, it is in existing creatures. So we're gonna very quickly, Jay. You're gonna we're gonna go from dinosaurs to lizards, and this is actually a the next story is a, is a the next installation in a in a series of similar stories that we've been telling on our show. You're not gonna believe this, guys. This yeah. freaking, I bet we won't. this German guy literally yeah. stuffed forty cords. His name is Hans. He stuffed forty four <laughs> small lizards into his underwear and tried to get it on a plane. They're, Why did he do that? To sell them. He, yeah, of course. Like, he's <laughs> smuggling them. Oh, yeah. it could have been for sexual gratification. Oh, I think he lost a bet. Do lizards explode when you ignite them? Yeah, right. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess it, it's better than putting a bomb in your underwear. That's definitely did true. they. Did they count Not for all the of lizards. lizards? <laughs> yeah, actually, actually. Yeah, right. They, <laughs> they weren't sure. Forty-four, yeah, forty-five. They, 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 right, forty-four, forty-eight, forty-three. <laughs> <laughs> these were these were really small geckos, um, and basically he tried to get on, and they busted him when he was getting on the plane. Yeah, he was getting him out of New Zealand. Yep. And they're, apparently wow. they were worth about twenty-eight hundred bucks each. <gasps> Wow. Yeah, we all we have to do is bring it back, a, bring back one or two of these each, and we could pay for our trip down under. Yeah, street or awesome. save on, insur- on auto insurance. Yeah. <laughs> street street value for these kinds of busts uh, gets exaggerated sometimes, but uh, it was obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. worth his effort to stuff lizards down his pants. Right, yeah, but right. don't get those like really small crevices and stuff. <laughs> Oh. So maybe there were more. Maybe it was, maybe it was a large man. Lots of Can we do some trivia now? Him. Think about the process here. Like, okay, this guy goes out, he poaches these lizards. You know, he, apparently he had been doing it. They found custom records from customs uh, that he had been doing it almost every other year, every couple of years. He'd come, you know, go back and forth. But okay, so where was he? Was he in the bathroom at the airport? Or was he like before he got to the airport, and he literally like had to finally do the deed? I have to stick these forty-four lizards in my pants. Like, what what happens? That has to be yeah, on video. I have to see this on well, video. Seen the movie Midnight Express? I'm sure it was something like that. I think he had some would, kind of con- specialized container, didn't he? Did yeah, he, so, he sewed them yeah. into two pockets yeah. inside his pants. Right. There had That's to be all crafty. sorts of giggling and stuff like that going on though when he was like adjusting things and. Remember the, the the guy with the birds had bird poop on his shoes. That's how we got busted. <laughs> we, oh we God, give away. right. We keep some frogs and lizards and things like that. And if a cricket gets away, that's twelve cents. So you jump after the cricket. And uh, I can just imagine how fast you jump if a twenty eight hundred dollar gecko was escaping from your, your pants. <laughs> oh my God. Right? No Pretty kidding. Damn fast. Yeah. Now there are reasons why people should not be illegally transporting and importing animals from environments to. Yes. One place to the other. It's <laughs> true. You know, we do laugh about it, but people don't do it, you well, douchebags. It, yeah. There's a couple of very obvious I things. I really do hate people like that. I you hate get things like Frankenfish so who, like, you know, or d- devour whole ecosystems. You know, they, well, they, it's they like, you know, you contribute, to, you contribute to the, extin- the extinction of the animal that you might be importing. You contribute to the destruction of the environment that this animal might be taking over. I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong. Plus, the individual animal is not having a good time in your pants. I know that you probably <laughs> that think that, like, oh, everybody has a good time in my pants. No. No, the lizards are not. 
a good good rule of thumb is that uh, if, if a an animal is really suitable for for keeping at home, uh, uh, there will always already be a successful live breeding program that keeps them. Uh, Keeps a robust right. population in the pet trade. So, like, importing live animals is nuts. Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? So, let's play last week's Who's That Noisy, shall we? Shall we? Shall we? Let's. Here we go. Getting the that's, that's correct. No, that's right. But yellow fever vaccine had leukemia yeah. virus in it. And, you know, this is in the days of very crude science. <laughs> so, anyway, I went down and talked to him. And I said, well, why are you concerned about it? I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I have a feeling in my bones that this virus is different. I, I don't know why to tell you this, but I've been around biology a long time. I just think this virus may have some long-term effects. Mm. Okay. I you still have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm either. just afraid I'm going to get the leukemia virus. <laughs> you got to watch out for that. So have you guys ever heard of Dr. Maurice Hilleman? No. I uh, don't think no. so. Dr. Maurice Hilleman was an American microbiologist who specialized in vaccinology, and he developed over three dozen vaccines, uh, which is more than any other scientist in history. Of the 14 vaccines routinely recommended in today's current vaccine schedules, uh, he developed eight of them. He's credited with saving more lives than any other scientist in the 20th century. And there's a clip of this on YouTube. You know, which part of part of this interview with with Dr. Hillerman, uh, in which you know he basically says these things that um, essentially cancer and AIDS come from <laughs> stem from from the vaccinations that they made from uh, you know that carried in by mon- carried in by monkeys um, from these experiments that they were doing in nineteen fifties, sixties, seven and seventies. I don't know, Steve. Do you know you know anything more about uh, Dr. Hillerman? I've heard about these accusations. Yeah, I mean, they've of course have never been substantiated, and it's just become part of the anti-vaccine conspiracy lore. Uh, and so, oftentimes, there's like elements that have a kernel of truth to them if you dig down, but it doesn't amount to people getting cancer and AIDS from the vaccine, from any vaccine. That that is just uh, not true. Yeah. Evan, did anyone guess it? Well, yes. In fact, uh, several people did. However, it was Evil Eye who guessed correctly first that that was Dr. Hillerman. So, very good, Evil Eye. Good job. What do you got for this week, Ev? All right. So, this week, we have... Money. Well, you know, something still doesn't add up, you know? You got your uh, classic mystery here. Yeah, it's right up there with crop circles. You don't believe in anything. You don't believe in the afterlife? Life would be easier if I were gullible. Be careful. Okay, so <laughs> you can, uh, you know, if you can identify the voices in that clip, great. If you can tell me where that clip came from, great. Go ahead, give it a guess. Let me know. Okay, and thanks, Evan. Yep, no problem. We're going to do one email this week. This one comes from Mike Lara from the from London, UK. Do you know him, Rebecca? Yay, probably. Okay, Bumped I know a lot him of the people. other day. And Mike writes. I was having a discussion with a friend over addictions, in particular substance abuse like alcohol. He was arguing that ultimately it is a choice that the addict makes and that it is not a real disease, in quotes, as such. I'm undecided on this issue, being wary of the bullcrap that Alcoholics Anonymous, amongst other organizations, feeds their members in order to turn them into born-again Christians. But at the same time, I don't feel the issue is as simple as that. Since Dr. Novella's specialization is neuroscience, 
how akin to a real disease is alcoholism and other substance. In your opinion, should other milder addictions, non-chemically driven ones like, say, video game addiction, be also considered addictions, or are they simply choices that the person chooses to make? Is there, any, is there even a scientific consensus on these issues? Well, um, this is a very interesting question. I, first, I'll have to say that I don't think that the word disease is really applicable uh, I think that a, a better term would be a disorder, maybe even an illness, but not a disease. The word disease really should be, I, I think, uh, used only when you're dealing with a very specific pathology. But what we do know about addiction is that it is not simply behavior or personality or choice. It is It is definitely a brain disorder. We could see differences in the brain, and I'm not just talking about this kind of subtle things. If you become addicted to a substance, it actually changes the biochemistry of your brain in very specific and dramatic ways. There are, in in the primitive part of the brain, specifically those parts that deal with the reward system, there there are significant and permanent changes, uh, like the nucleus accumbens, for example, seems to be a focal center, and uh, dopamine seems to be the primary neurotransmitter that's involved. So if what do you call something where the biochemistry of your brain is altered through, you know, in this case, uh, exposure to, to certain chemicals, let's say? What, what do we call that? The, a party. The, Mutation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a really a, a fully free choice because there the are the changes to the brain are it's it's that part of your brain almost that's most designed to influence your behavior and designed yeah you know by evolution yeah uh, evolutionarily can we just record that so that every time any of us says the word design <laughs> it just like automatically designed <laughs> i hate yeah, the fact that designed by they've Jesus. stolen that word from yeah. us the, the, they the, really the, have you can't use it anymore nope. it stinks <laughs> i have quite a lot of experience with uh, severe alcoholism in my close family and one of my conclusions is that it, it's kind of naive to divide and I think this is what you were saying, Steve, but it's naive to divide the whole world up into, uh, you know, fully deterministic and, and fully free. You know, it's obvious that, that, uh, in the case of, of, uh, substance abuse, first of all, there are many, many different kinds of abusers abusing in different ways. That's one thing. Uh, and another is that, uh, it obviously does uh, impact someone's volition or reduce someone's volition uh, when they are, as you say, uh, their brains are altered. And, and you can see this in behavior. You can see uh, people who have a very strong personality type have, uh, you know, have uh, uh, their volition leads them in one, one way in particular. And uh, after the addiction takes hold, all those things fall away and, and their volition is directed in a totally different direction. Yeah, and that that's you know codified in specific diagnoses. I mean, uh, and we see that all the time in in the medical context. People engage in what we call drug seeking behavior, where it's really easy to see what they're doing. They're not really making anything uh, like a rational choice. Uh, and and once you're familiar with the pattern of behavior, the pattern is actually fairly transparent and regular. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect to it. But and you're right. I think a lot of this stems from the absolute false dichotomy between free choice and 
completely involuntary, out of, your, out of control addiction. Even people at the absolute bottom of their addiction, it's still possible for some people at that point to just to decide that they are going to stop their addictive behavior. And depending on what factors there are in, in their life at that time, and it's amazingly unpredictable, by the way, <laughs> uh, they, they, may be, they may or they may not be able to, to change their behavior. Yeah, it's it's un, unpredictable except when looked at from a public health perspective. We can predictably mm-hmm. know that that the position that addicts should just pull themselves up, uh, get their life together, make a make a clean start. That, that is, it's a naive, insufficient sort of public policy that. Uh, uh, is, yeah, it's, is, it's it's statistically predictable, but not individually. Yeah, individually, what I mean is that yeah, yeah you you know you have somebody. For example, even you know, come into the emergency room or, or present to medical to attention, saying, "All right, I, I'm I'm ready. I want to quit." You can't really predict which of those people is going to, in fact, quit, and which ones are going to go right back to abusing. Yeah, you could when- say x percentage of them will, or you could identify predictive factors for percentages, but you can't do it individually. So we don't know really what what uh, the, what combination of factors push. You know, people over that magic threshold where they're able to overcome their addiction. But it, it's also hugely genetically determined in that, you know, we've been able to, to uh, ge- breed rats that are born addicts. They, they are born essentially, you know, you exposed to something and they're completely addicted with a single exposure. Saves and time. we can also breed rats that are immune to addiction. That cannot cool. be addicted. So it's clearly genetically determined as well. And in fact, you know, human beings seem to, to ha- have the same, maybe not that extreme, but they're along that spectrum from easily addicted to very difficult to addict. And, and there's every reason to suspect that it's primarily a genetic, a genetic difference and just you know, how the brain is hardwired to deal with these kind of, of uh, reward systems and the systems that are in place to to control our behavior, but you know, no choice that we make is, or or for very few, is a hundred percent you know rational free will choice. All the things that we think and choose and 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 feel are the result of a complex set of subconscious processes that are that are occurring. Um, again, to make this false dichotomy between making a free will choice and, and an addiction, I think it misunderstands how the brain works. Um, to to argue that uh, you know that, that any choice can be completely free, it uh, it really seems like a kind of Cartesian dualism. That you, don't you need a soul for that? If your if your body is you know the the seat of the mind, uh, your body has to be involved in all choices. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of now getting to the the. Uh, philosophical question almost yeah. do we even have free will uh, which I think is complicated and I'm not really sure I want to get we, we've had guests on to, to dis- discuss this very issue before like from naturalism.org it pretty um, much always I, comes I, down to that conclusion it's complicated <laughs> it's complicated yeah. and I agree yeah, like that was the first that. thing that popped into my head Dan- Daniel is that like well none of us are really choosing but then yeah. that's pretty much always what I think so yeah, I mean, you still make choices. I mean, operationally, you oh, still absolutely. make a choice. Yeah. That still happens, but it's that choice is is deterministic. So it depends on how you define free will and what it really means. Um, but also, even though it, you may be making a choice, we're not conscious of all of the things that go into that choice. Yeah. 
that that's that's a key thing to understand. So here with addiction, you just have this one factor, this one subconscious factor, which becomes overwhelming and which most people most of the time cannot resist. And that becomes, I think, what can reasonably be determined a disorder. But what the social and medical implications of that are go a little bit beyond the science and the philosophy, although, again, they're informed by them, but you also now we have to make some value judgments as well. We're going to do one, do one quick name that logical fallacy before we go on. I, I blogged about this, so I'll let you know. If you, if you read my blog, you've heard this, but I do want to also just have some fun with it on the show. So very quickly, uh, do you guys know who wrote this? Skeptics believe that all vaccines are safe and effective, even if they've never been tested, that all people, all is in all caps, that all people should be vaccinated even against their will, and that there is no limit to the number of vaccines a person can be safely given. So injecting all children, for example, 900 vaccines all at the same time is believed to be perfectly safe and good for your health. I believe that that perfectly describes the skeptical straw man built by one (laughs) would-be Shorty's Award winner. Shorty's? (laughs) Yes, the uh, the Twitter Award. Would-be. Oh, the Twitter Award, that's right. He did not win, he... Would be winner would be. because yes, he tried okay, to you. win. Is that Ray Comfort? Who was it? Mike Mike Adams. Neil Adams. No. <laughs> oh, that idiot. Mike oh, Adams. God. Mike Adams, the health ranger from what's his website? Natural Daniel Natural Ways to Die dot com. Daniel, you know about yeah. this chucklehead? I I do. He should really have run under the uh, the crybaby tantrum category. I think he would have placed <laughs> yeah, better. Yeah. So so very quickly for our listeners who haven't read the story, he was winning in the Shorty Awards, which is a Twitter award under um, it's actually just the nominations for them under the health category. But then it was discovered that that there was some ballot stuffing going on. People were creating new Twitter accounts just to vote for him. It, he may have encouraged them to do that, either probably not realizing because he didn't read carefully that it was against the rules. So he was disqualified for doing that. However, completely aside from his disqualification, the skeptical blogosphere, I think, you know, PZ Myers gets the most credit for this given his following, um, also, you know, directed skeptics to the voting and, and launched Rachel Dunlop into the first place position with more than like twice as many votes as the number two position. Excuse me, I would like to take most of the credit for this. I mean, second to Dr. Rachie herself. But I would just like to point out that after I tweeted it, that's when she went ahead. It could have just been, you know, correlation doesn't prove causation, blah, blah, blah. But I choose to believe it. I was just basing that on PZ's, you know, famous history for breaking. No, no, no. I was totally on top of that. Okay. okay. And, well, I, I, and the, the, the skeptical blogosphere gets, gets actually started. not me. That was my 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 friends, my Twitter friends. Yes. To to be clear, Rachel Dunlop is a prominent Australian skeptic who's been active in the uh, the yes. fight against vaccine hysteria. Yeah, I hope our listeners know her. We've had her on the show before, and yeah, she's, yeah. she's ten kinds of awesome. She's awesome. She is. She's yeah, dynamite. super awesome. Dynamite. And she's a sweetheart. She's a you know totally yeah. sweet sweet girl, and which makes it all the more heinous that they that that this guy and also um, Wink Martindale and Mer- and Mercola, <laughs> another natural guru, <laughs> co- totally attacked her. 
Ricola called her like chubby, and they <laughs> called her a shill for farm. For it's just really horrible because they were because they were whining because they were losing in a stupid uh, internet. You know, but the good thing is that Mercola's attacks were so vicious that many of his followers yeah, yeah. literally came out and said, Backlash. what is wrong with you? I can't believe you're being this mean. So one of the consequences <laughs> that was, was that Mike Adams wrote an article about what skeptics believe, and it's a list of ridiculous straw men. That was what I just read was just one of the straw men, and that's the, the primary logical fallacy, and it's just – what what uh, what he does is takes um, the skeptical position and then distorts it beyond all recognition with the the very common and simplistic approach most of the time of just making it into an, a black and white absolute. Yeah, he loves and that. He loves that. What what others? I think Mark Crislip was the first one to specifically put this in writing. Have observed is that. Uh, a lot of the alt-med types really have a very low tolerance for ambiguity and nuance. They, to them, mm-hmm. things are either all good or all bad. It's, you know, it's completely black or white simplistic thinking. It's either A drug is either a poison or it's a miracle cure. There's really nothing in between. There's no complexity about risk versus benefit or anything. So you can just see that thinking throughout this logical fallacy. All vaccines are perfectly safe all the time, an unlimited amount to everybody, and we should force it against their will. You know, Steve, really? Part of the mentality, too, is there's, there's no fun in those layers of gray there, right? Like, they, they love the magical thinking, and they also love to, to hate things. You know, they, they want to put yeah. down things simultaneously putting up the things that they support. Well, this guy has something to sell. So, for, from one point of view, again, this is my opinion, I'm not convinced that he doesn't, he, he may not believe any of this. This could all just be BS that he does as marketing ploy, right? But to whatever extent he does believe any of this, it's just really childish thinking. Again, it's this sort of black and white, complete inability to deal with any kind of nuance or complexity to issues that are very complex. So that leads to this ridiculous caricature. And he, you know, it's, there are some people who do think like this, whether he does or not, that do, you know, we, we get this kind of feedback all the time. It's like, well, actually, this doesn't reflect the skeptical position at all. We think that only vaccines that have been shown to be safe by being tested, those are the ones we think are safe, the ones that have been tested and found to be safe and effective. We do, of course, we don't think there's no limit. He's completely distorting something that Paul Offit wrote, which is about the antigenic load that, or exposure, like how many different types of things can the immune system be safely exposed to? And the fact is that vaccines represent an insignificant exposure to the to the immune system. It's just very targeted against those specific viruses or whatever that you're being vaccinated against. But just kids going through their daily lives are going to be exposed to hundreds of times, you know, the, the amount of um, antigens and things that stimulate the immune system. That's what he was referring to. But here's the thing, that, the, that even though the, the – the vaccine schedule has increased. The number of antigens in those vaccines has decreased. Um, so we're actually getting less exp- – our immune systems are getting less exposure than they were in the, in the vaccine schedule from, say, 20 years ago. So they're anyway, more efficient. Yeah, it's more efficient. It's all irrelevant because we're swimming in antigens. It's, it, this, this, it's an insignificant addition to that. Plus, if anything – in modern life, we're getting too little exposure. Our immune systems are, are too protected and right. not getting enough of a workout. They, our immune systems need to be challenged even more. So Mike Adams managed to get every single thing wrong 
in, in hey. his statement. Batting a thousand. You know, he's one of those. He's one of those guys. When I read what he writes, his manner of writing it just feels like he's yelling everything. Yeah, you know, he's not writing in <laughs> uber caps or anything, but he's <laughs> ranting. Might, might as ranting. well be all caps, right? Yeah. Well, he throws some of caps in there for emphasis. Yeah. No, Rebecca it's knows a, what I mean by uber caps. Super caps lock. Yeah. <laughs> super caps lock. And I don't care. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics, my international panel of skeptics. Daniel, you're in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm so twice as international. Yeah, oh, so we got Canada, sorry. UK, and Oh, what's United it make States. me? Three times as international? <laughs> <laughs> I challenge my international panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Number one. Number one. Naturalists have discovered that when wasps lay their eggs in figs without reciprocating by fertilizing the fig tree, the tree retaliates by killing the eggs. Item number two, researchers have discovered that bats and dolphins have the same genetic mutations and the same protein responsible for their echolocation. And item number three, a new study finds that running barefoot burns 15% more calories than running shod. (laughs) (laughs) Or shoeed. More calories? Rebecca, go first. Oh, man. See, I'm telling you what to do again. (laughs) No. (laughs) I demand that you shoot me now. I can can believe that that trees retaliate against wasps by killing their (laughs) eggs. Um, That seems... It's very Day of the Triffids, but... uh, (laughs) I, I, I can see how that might, it would benefit the tree to evolve in such a way that it would favor wasps that would fertilize it. So that makes sense. Um, bats and dolphins having the same genetic mutations in the same protein responsible for their echolocation, that also sort of makes sense. Um, I mean, they're both mammals using echolocation, I don't really know. I haven't heard anything about that. Um, running barefoot burns 15% more calories than running shod. This makes me suspicious, only because I know that there have been several studies recently that have shown that running barefoot is, uh, it's, it's better for your joints, for instance. Um, it's not necessarily better for the soles of your feet or your ankles support. But it is supposedly better for your, um, for your knees and your hips. It's like the more natural way to run. So, if anything, I would think that it would be a more efficient way to run. And therefore, I think that that is the fake item. I believe that running barefoot actually burns fewer calories than running shod. Okay. Daniel, why don't you go next? Okay. Uh, do you mind if I just say, ah, for a long time? <laughs> That's what Bob does. Someone's putting a depressor on your tongue or something. Yeah. Uh, well, let me see. The uh, the fig one, uh, I just off the top of my head, I can't think what the mechanism would be. The dolphin bat one, that, that's interesting because, like, um, uh, you know, there, there are these master genes that, that uh, encode for eyes in, like, fruit flies and rabbits. Uh, so it's it seems plausible on the on the surface, although those are not very closely related lineages of mammals. Uh, I would guess that neither of them had 
had direct in ancestors that had echolocation. Uh, the barefoot thing, uh, let me see. If it was very, if it was very cold, you'd vent a lot of calories. Uh, mind you, that might actually be more efficient when you're running. You have waste heat to get rid of. Um, so just off the top of my head, let's, let's say the, the dolphin one's false. Okay, Jay. Okay. So the wasps laying their eggs in fig trees. I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this since you said it, and I'm trying to figure out, like, how does the fig tree kill the eggs? And how does it know that the flower wasn't, wasn't uh, pollinated? And I don't have the answer to those questions, so I can't really, I can't comment on that. I mean, it's, I'm sure that it's possible, but I just, I just can't put it together right now. The researchers have discovered that bats and dolphins share the same genetic mutations. That, man, I hope that's true because that's really, really interesting and, and it also proves evolution. And then finally, the study shows that, f- that running barefoot burns 15% more calories than running shod. I don't, I think that one is the fake. Okay, Bob? I, I basically think that Rebecca just totally nailed it. Um, let's see. The, I could see that the selective pressure for the uh, wasps and the fig tree. I could totally see how there would be a, a really, really intense selective pressure to do that. I can't think of a mechanism either, but I just don't know enough about uh, the actual process of you know where they're laying the eggs and where they would fertilize. And, and I don't know much about fig trees Either so that doesn't bother me too much. I I could see how that could how that could arise over time. Um, so that's not bothering me too much. The dolphins and bats that that's an interesting one because um, the same specific genetic mutation in the same protein that's that's saying something because there's because bats and dolphins man they they split off of a common ancestor quite a while ago, um, and the fact that that they've got the same the same mutation is pretty interesting. But uh, I mean just you know convergent evolution they're you know they're trying to solve the same problem and it just it just probably means that there's a specific way for echolocation to really work and they just happen to nail it um separately uh the third one again i think rebecca nailed it that uh from my my understanding is that barefoot running is actually a little less injury prone than uh wearing running shoes it's probably more a little bit more efficient and I would I would agree that it would probably be even burn even fewer calories. Fifteen percent uh, seems like a lot anyway. Even besides all that I just said, so I'm going to say that uh, the uh, the running barefoot is uh, is fiction. Okay, Evan. These naturalists have discovered that when white Anglo-Saxon Protestants lay their eggs. <laughs> what? That's, oh, I looked up the definition. It's not an acronym. <laughs> Yeah, they're not in all caps. Yeah, well, I th- there are plenty of examples of symbiosis in nature, are there not? So yes, I'm not correct. surprised at all that there would be something to the effect of a tree, quote unquote, retaliating by killing the eggs. I'm not sure it's you know it's not necessarily a. Well, I guess you could consider it kind of a deliberate act. Uh, in, but does it have in, a free in a cer- will? In a certain context. Well, you know. I mean, <laughs> Evan, do you think it's like the Whomping Tree in Harry Potter? <laughs> or, 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 or Treebeard in, in Lord of the Rings or something, right? Uh, but, you know, something, some sort of chemical reaction might be happening that causes the death of the eggs. So I think that's okay. And, yeah, for me it came down to uh, bats and dolphins with the 
mutations and uh, the barefoot runners. Those were the two that I'm choosing back and forth between. After hearing the arguments, I must admit I am influenced that the running barefoot one is a little more stinky. Uh, to me, so I'll say that one's fiction. So you guys are Sorry. leaving poor Daniel hanging out well, there by himself. I, I kind of feel bad, like, you know. I'm like, you know, kind of the last okay. one. Like, oh, Daniel, uh, gotta go. Well, you <laughs> all agree. You all agree uh, that uh, naturalists have discovered that when wasps lay their eggs in figs without reciprocating by fertilizing the fig tree, the tree retaliates by killing the eggs. You think that's science, and that one is science. And yes, cool. for the reasons that you stated, it makes perfect sense. Actually, figs and wasps are a good example of co-evolution. They evolved mm. a relationship together. The wasps lay their eggs in the figs and, and, and reciprocate by fertilizing the fig trees. And uh, what, the, um, what the scientists discovered is that what happens is the wasps lay their eggs in the actual fig. And if they don't fertilize the tree, the tree will drop the fig onto the ground, killing all the eggs inside because it will just then rot and, and they will not be able to sustain the eggs. That's how they do it. Um, and yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that, that selective pressures would create because there's no advantage to the tree of, apparently, of hosting the wasp eggs if the wasps aren't doing their bit back for the tree. So that forces compliance. And that kind of thing is very common in nature, actually. So the tree is saying, no, reach around. I'm going to drop that big. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, my God. No. <laughs> well, let's go on number two. Researchers have discovered that bats and dolphins have the same genetic mutations and the same protein responsible for their echolocation. Daniel, you didn't buy this one. Everyone else thought this one was science. And this one is science. Yeah! <laughs> but, Daniel, you had the same reaction that I had. This this is yeah sure this would be convergent evolution uh, because dolphins and bats certainly do not share a common ancestor with echolocation uh, and actually I think the same body of research also showed similar findings with toothed whales. Th what this su suggests is that this is mega convergent evolution. It's not just producing the same basic morphology but actually the same mutations at a DNA level of you know, con convergent mutations, that's, that's rare, at least as far as what we have discovered. What this led the researchers to hypothesize is that, now also for sorry, a little bit more background, the protein is a protein that is responsible for the structure of the hair cells on the inner ear. The, those are, these are the neurons that have little, the little hair-like projections that respond to the vibrations in the fluid in the inner ear that hear the sound. And in order to have echolocation, you need hair cells that can vibrate much more quickly. So what the researchers hypothesize is that there must be only a very few ways to achieve that goal um, of making the, the – uh, being able to, to – detect much more frequent vibrations, high-frequency vibrations. And therefore, it's, you know, this is the only way to, you know, for vertebrates who have the basic you know, structures already in place to evolve echolocation. They all had to hit upon the, the, the same solution, which I think, um, Daniel, you, you, um, or was it you or Bob, I think, who actually mentioned that, that if, if, it, there must only be a very limited number of ways. So they all hit upon the yeah. same way. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah. So, but that's this is I think um, makes it sound like I mean 
it's always hard to make these kind of statements about what is or is not out there, but the researchers made it seem as if this is one of the most extreme examples of convergent evolution that we've discovered, you know, again, down to the mutation level. That's that's really neat, but I think what it all comes down to is that it should be a point for me because I'm a guest. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I did do some evolution-themed items, you know, in honor of our guest, since your book on evolution is <laughs> out. But that, that, see, sometimes what happens, Bob learned this the hard way, especially earlier on in, in the show, that sometimes the more you know, the harder the game is because oh, yeah. you get tripped huh. up on – because you know how, how surprising this news item is. Right. So <laughs> if you didn't know how surprising it is, it might not bother you that much and you might gloss over it. I'm actually surprised how much you guys knew about the whole running barefoot thing. So a new study finds that running barefoot burns 15% more calories than running shod is fiction. The real news item is a, a study came out showing that barefoot running is probably more safe biomechanically than running with shoes. What they, what the researchers were looking at was the way in which the foot strikes the ground when running barefoot versus running wearing shoes. When running with shoes, about 70% of people will strike with the heel, which puts a lot of wear and tear on the, on the heel itself and also is, is a, a, creates a, a lot of shock through the, the joints, the knees and the hips. Uh, whereas most people running barefoot will strike more with the front of the foot and distribute the weight more evenly across the foot as they strike the ground. Um, and therefore, it has less of an impact. Uh, you, you guys are also right. Those who mentioned this, it's actually running barefoot's a little more efficient. So it's 4% more efficient, not 15% yeah. less efficient. So I, yeah. I I wanted to make sure that my thing was, un, was unequivocally fiction. So that's why I went with something that was the uh -huh. opposite of the truth. Um, so very... So very interesting. I wonder if they can use that information to design better sneakers. Yeah. Or is it a matter of – is it the thickness itself that causes the heel to strike? Because it's, it's hard to, to do away with the thickness because that's – you know, a, a sneaker's got to have a certain thickness really. Yeah, it does seem that minimally shod, just like having a, like a sandal type thing. Right. You, you run more as if you were barefoot. So you just have like an extra layer – Essentially to replace the calluses that would otherwise be there right. if you actually did walk around like a hobbit all the time in bare feet. Then you could just put a, a strip of leather on the bottom of your foot, but not the, all the arch support and the ankle support and all the other things that, 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 that modern shoes have. I put it to you guys that running barefoot actually makes you burn a lot less calories because who the hell is going to run barefoot? <laughs> well, the people who do it say they like <laughs> in this, it. In this country, yeah. They say I they enjoy it. I, I can't do it here. I mean, the only place I would even consider running barefoot would be like on a football field or something. A track. Right? Well, yeah. here's the thing to remember, though. If you're not used to running barefoot, then your muscles are not toned in the, in the different way that you use them when you run barefoot. And your, your, your feet don't have the calluses that they would have if you frequently go barefoot. So, yeah, you can't go from a life in shoes and then suddenly go jogging marathons barefoot. You would have to slowly transition. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you have to think about it that way. I think the, also the bottom line is the jury is still out on whether or not, in terms of injuries and other things, there's really a significant advantage to running barefoot versus running in shoes. I don't think there's really a clear answer there. But it's interesting that there may have been some inadvertent changes to the biomechanics of running with shoes 
that have some disadvantages. And, and Bob, you're right. We may be able to compromise to um, – because, you know, I'm not going to walk around with no shoes on. You know, that's not going to happen. But they no, may man. be able to compromise <laughs> by designing shoes that give you the advantages of shoes without changing the biomechanics and, and having the disadvantages come along for a ride. Nano shoes. Right. <laughs> and I'll also mention, I don't know if any of you guys have heard this, but Brian Dunning of Skeptoid actually did a recent episode all on this controversy. So if you want to listen to Brian talk about this topic oh, for 10 cool. minutes, you can look, look at Skeptoid. I'll run right uh, over there. <laughs> so congratulations, guys. Daniel, not a bad first try. Did you make good effort? <laughs> <laughs> Better luck next time. You don't have the experience that these other guys have. They have... They're, they have a very good track record against me very recently. They're, they're, uh, they're getting too good at this game. Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? <laughs> I do have a quote. I have a quote. By, uh, this is a quote from Charles Darwin. I've heard of him. Chucky. Charlie. Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> it appears to me, whether rightly or wrongly, that direct arguments against Christianity and theism produce hardly any effects on the public, and freedom of thought is best promoted by the gradual illumination of men's minds, which follows from the advance of science. Uh. Michael Shermer quoting Darwin! (laughs) 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 Yeah, so actually, I sent that to Jay, but I picked it up from Michael Shermer's blog post on Skeptic Blog today, which I thought, hey, that's a great quote, and we'll send that to Jay for the quote of the day quote of the week. <laughs> Great uh, Steve, quote. there's an alternate ending to this quote. We could ask Daniel to, to yell the name out. You just want me to yell Charles Darwin? Well, you, well, you could say what I said, or you could say Charles Darwin, you, and you could do you know any any version of what yeah. I do. But it has to be you know, kind of, kind of <laughs> yeah. a yell. Embellish it however you want. <laughs> Charles Darwin! Darwin. Wow. <laughs> I like it. That's the, that's the most you've ever not sounded like yourself I, that I've ever heard. I know. That, that, that sounded like an infomercial guy. Right? right. <laughs> Billy That's Mays. my backup career. <laughs> well, Daniel, thanks for being a guest rogue on The Skeptic Side. We really enjoyed having you. Thanks so much for having me. It's awesome. Daniel, your time. new book You're awesome, Daniel. sounds awesome. I can't wait to uh, to get a hard copy, and uh, I'm, I'm going to expect well, you to sign it two or three times. Yeah, I got I got a hard well, copy, but Daniel, you didn't sign it. <gasps> so when I see you next I time, did. I see you, I'll have to get you to sign it. And I look forward to reading through it with my daughters. You you actually probably it. got that hard cover uh, that got that hard copy before I got my author copies. Uh, uh, that one went straight out from the publisher, but but I'll, I'll be uh, uh, perfectly happy to to sign each and every one of the five copies that you're each going to buy. So okay, great. <laughs> what, was that, what was that last word? I, I missed that last word there. It's static. Steve, <laughs> Steve, you gotta you, you gotta, gotta run up to you gotta run up to Daniel. Say, have your autograph. Have your autograph. <laughs> yeah, we totally gotta do that. That'd be awesome. We'll do it at Tam. <laughs> Look, it's Daniel Oxtail. Oh my God, I have his book. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Our pleasure. Always a pleasure. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 